Um, I'm Kristen Heilman, Associate Curator of Contemporary Art at the Hirshhorn Museum, and um, we'll be walking through the exhibition Strange Bodies, figurative works from the Hirshhorn Collection, which I organized. Um, if you are coming down either from the elevator or the escalator, you'll find yourself in um, a kind of lobby type area with some introductory wall text. If you're facing that wall text and you move over to your right, you'll be standing in front of a work by Jasper Johns. Um, and I think this is an interesting work to just to touch on as we start looking at uh, pieces in, in this particular show, as it gives several examples of um, how an artist can interpret a human face. Uh, if you look to the far right of the painting, you'll see kind of an optical illusion, illusion or an optical test. Um, depending on sort of what you're inclined to see, you may read that image as a beautiful young lady who's sort of turning her head away from you. Or you might see an older woman uh, with a headscarf and a fur coat um, with her chin sort of buried in that fur. And, you know, moving then towards the left um, are increasingly abstract versions of human faces, uh, in theory, female faces. Uh, so this artist, Jasper Johns, in addition to doing many other things, is um, kind of examining how the human form can disintegrate uh, through an artist's intervention, um, but also how through, those, through changing the, the human form, um, kind of reconfiguring it, he, one can be allowed to look at um, what, what a human face signifies or um, the kind of emotions a human face can convey anew. And I think that's a theme that carries out throughout this exhibition. Um, there are a lot of faces that you will encounter. There are also parts of faces and parts of bodies that are depicted. And if you walk to basically the exact opposite wall from that Jasper Johns painting, you'll see a work by Andy Warhol that um, only features a single face, facial feature, and that, uh, and that is a pair of lips repeated over and over again. Uh, before you move over and take a look at the, the label for this work and see what the title is, um, you might want to just guess at whose lips um, are featured in the image. And if you, if you don't want to go so far as to venturing a guess about the exact person, Think about things um, like whether the person is a woman or a man, uh, whether the person is attractive or not attractive, whether the person is famous or not famous. And I think it's interesting to see how much information can be communicated simply through this one single facial feature repeated over and over again in the painting. So um, I'll let you go take a look at the title now um, and identify the person whose lips are, are pictured here. Uh, there are several other works in this gallery, um, so take a few minutes and, and uh, have a look at them. We're going to be moving into the main gallery shortly, but I do want to uh, point out a pairing of works that in some ways is actually a little bit of a visual joke. There's a sculpture in bronze by Renée Magritte uh, called The Healer. That's kind of to the side of Warhol's uh, picture of the lips. And then next to Magritte's The Healer is a work by Jim Dine called Flesh-Striped Tie. Uh, I find the pairing of these two works rather amusing uh, because in both instances, you have human, human form implied through clothing. Um, and 
funnily enough, uh, in the Magritte, we have a figure whose chest is missing and replaced by a birdcage. And in the, in the Dine painting, you have an entire body that's missing, but a chest is suggested through a necktie. Um, again, it's worth considering why the artists in these two works have decided to represent the human form through fragmentation or by, in a way, uh, pointing out what's not there. And I think it's, it's interesting, again, to kind of look at the titles and look at the kind of figures that are represented. Um, the healer, at least in my mind, implies a kind of um, shamanistic or almost magical, uh, mysterious and somewhat romantic personage. Uh, the Jim Dine is actually a kind of conflation between um, an image of, of the human body and that comes through in the flesh color of the paint. And um, a human aptitude for business, and particularly sort of a white collar field. So you have these two figures, one more of a mysterious, romantic type, and another uh, kind of odd interpretation of a professional. Um, so it's interesting, I think, just to, to compare those two versions of humanity. So let's move into the main gallery and head to our right. And there is a large um, double-paneled work that's by the artist Francis Bacon. It's uh, a striking orange color, so it's fairly easy to locate in the gallery. And I think this, uh, this painting continues many of the themes that um, are first explored in the works that are um, hung in the elevator and escalator lobby, in that it's, um, it's another depiction of the human body through fragmentation. And a question that I find interesting to think about um, while looking at this bacon is how, how little of the human form does an artist need to give you in order for you to still recognize it as human? Um, in particular, in the, in the right panel, uh, and kind of like Jasper Johns's painting, uh, the human form is almost abstracted into a kind of curvilinear shape. Interestingly, Bacon uh, took this form from a painting by the 19th century master, Angra, of Turkish bathers. And um, Angra's painting sort of shows a very sensual grouping of women in a, a bath. And um, it's very descriptive in terms of giving all sorts of information about those, those women, um, including obviously their facial features and hair and um, uh, all the parts of the body that are missing here. Um, but somehow I think Bacon does manage to, uh, to convey some of the sensuality of the Angra image uh, through just the beauty of the, the curves that he's exploring in this figure. On the other hand, he contrasts that sensuality, I think, with a little bit of br brutality in the fact that he has um, chopped off the woman's head, so to speak, and um, kind of painted in a, a rather around their bold red arrow um, pointing to this, this truncated figure. Um, the whole contrast is quite severe, even though there is a kind of lusciousness to the colors and uh, contours that appear in the painting. Uh, the left side of the image is a more masculine um, figure. And um, just to explain sort of uh, kind of a, a curious aspect of the image, the figure is wearing uh, protective gear that one would, would wear in a cricket match. And so um, 
sort of contrasting to this highly feminine, feminine image from art history, we have a, a sort of sporting figure um, representing the masculine half of this diptych. Another uh, interesting work sort of in this general area is a portrait of Malcolm X by the British artist Sue Coe. And uh, the artist has chosen to depict Malcolm X, the somewhat controversial civil rights leader, in the context of a slaughterhouse. Um, now, there's an actual historical, uh, you might call it coincidence or situation, that uh, led code to sort of juxtapose these two images. And that is that um, Malcolm X, uh, one of his first temples was located in Detroit next to a slaughtering house. And so there is this kind of interesting um, and odd connection uh, between the leader, the civil rights leader, and um, a rather brutal meat processing location. In addition to pointing out um, a historical situation, Sukho, I think, is also um, prefiguring Malcolm X's assassination by placing um, his portrait in the context of uh, a slaughterhouse um, where various other male figures have blood splattered on their, on their aprons. So it's, for me, a very powerful, um, a powerful work and one that has a politi political aspect. And interestingly, as we move through this show, we'll enter into a small gallery that features works by the German artist George Gross, who, um, in fact, was an influence on Sue Coe's own work. If we move across the gallery and look, um, look sort of at the wall that's opposite the Francis Bacon diptych, you'll see a grouping of three works by the artist Alberto Giacometti. Um, these works include two sculptures and one painting. And um, we're very fortunate at the Hirshhorn to have several works by Giacometti in our collection. And so it was interesting for me to um, put them out on view and see how they might rela relate to more contemporary pieces in the collection. I think Giacometti's pieces are at once kind of chilling. They, the forms are skeletal, the texture of the um, sculptures are this rough and, um, in a sense, brutal, just, just like Bacon's um, imagery. But on the other hand, there's a certain elegance to the elongation of the figures. And again, in many ways, like Bacon, I think Giacometti is playing with this tension between brutality and beauty. Um, the, that kind of skeletal elongation um, and also sort of roughened texture, for me, um, equally appears in Julian Schnabel's portrait of Andy Warhol. And that's the large image um, that's to your right as you're standing in front of the Giacometti's. The image of Warhol um, is actually, that uh, Schnabel is, is picturing here, is actually taken from a Richard Avedon portrait of Andy Warhol taken shortly after Warhol was shot. And so um, while Julian Schnabel, I think, in, in using velvet and using very rich, lush colors, is, it sort, of, is sort of pointing to the, um, the celebrity and the kind of luxury that existed around Warhol. He's also um, portraying the figure in a slightly vulnerable way. There's a pink sash around uh, Warhol's belly in this image. And, um, he seems very frail. So there is a, a suggestion, I think, for me at least, 
um, that kind of the, the prominence and celebrity of Warhol uh, is matched by Warhol being a human and a, um, a human that is vulnerable to illness or wounding, um, which is, is kind of a different way to think about um, our celebrities and our um, kind of iconic figures in our culture, and is not unrelated to Sukho's treatment of Malcolm X in the slaughterhouse. Uh, next to the Warhol, I just want to point out Franz Vest's um, sculpture, Lemurhead. And again, um, there are sort of echoes of the Giacometti in this form, including the extended nose of the head um, that uh, sort of evokes the, the elongated nose in Giacometti's sculpture to the left. And um, one thing to kind of ask yourself about this piece is why Franz Vest has paired his head, um, his strange head, <laughs> with a bed. Um, is it because he wants to talk about the figure or, and you know, sort of imply one of the activities that a human body does? Or is the bed actually acting as a body um, that completes the image of the head in this work? Uh, interestingly, uh, Franz Vest uh, allows this sculpture, as he does with many of his sculptures, to be reconfigured in different ways. And so there is an opportunity for museum staff to show the work without the bed and just um, have the head it's by itself sitting on the pedestal, which actually has an empty back into which the bed can be folded and, and tucked away. As we move into the middle portion of this large gallery, um, I suggest maybe that first you uh, turn to your right and have a look at um, the, the three sculptures, well actually four sculptures, if you include the piece that's kind of in the middle of the room, and two paintings. Um, if you look sort of immediately to your right, you will see a piece by Edward Keenholz and Nancy Redden Keenholz. Um, this is a piece from 1981, and it's uh, an assemblage that features a, a woman who's pregnant, sitting on a bed, looking into a headlight. Um, there's also a bird that rests on top of the sculpture, and um, as you move all the way around the piece, you'll see that each side uh, that's visible has something different to offer in terms of its visual composition. This piece operates on many different levels. Uh, one of them, I think, is just sort of the material complexity of the artwork. Um, it's fascinating to kind of see how found materials and sculpted materials are um, juxtaposed in the artwork. But um, on another level that I think is worth mentioning here, the artists themselves have said that, um, that the artwork in some ways deals with uh, the dilemma a woman faces uh, when, when she becomes pregnant and her religious beliefs um, limit the options uh, that she has in front of her in terms of, of making decisions about that pregnancy. Um, and in fact, the, the title of the artwork is called In the Infield with Patty Picavi. And Picavi um, is, is sort of a, a opening part of the um, Latin confessional and means I have sinned. So um, that's kind of an interesting religious connection uh, between the title and the artwork that I think lends some context, developing one's own understanding of the sculpture. Building on or sort of relating to the, that assemblage uh, by the Keenholzes, I think it's interesting to come over and take a look at The Warrior's Leg by Paul Tech. 
a piece that was made um, between 1966 and 1967, and also um, is a very sort of materially fascinating artwork. Um, it's it's uncanny, uncannily lifelike, I, I feel. And if you are tall enough and can get close to it, you can sort of look into the top of the sculpture and see the, the, severed, um, the severed innards of the leg. Uh, Paul Tech made several of these kind of fragmented body parts encased in um, vitrines and considered them um, part of a series he called Technological Reliquaries. Um, in again, in addition to sort of having many layers of meaning, uh, one way to look at them uh, is to think about them being made during the context of the Vietnam War. Um, Paul Tech is, in this piece, is using uh, sort of ancient imagery. He's evoking, I, I feel, he's evoking um, kind of a gladiatorial figure of times past. But since the sculpture was made in the 1960s, um, one, and is titled The Warrior's Leg, uh, one can kind of transpose that ancient image of battle um, onto a contempor more contemporary field. And one can uh, think about the physical and mental um, disruptions and tragedies that uh, occur during wars at any, at any time. Um, and of course, then we, we've brought in another leg <laughs> that is part of the Hirshhorn's collection. This one by Robert Gober. <clears throat> and this, this leg actually having a, a very different feel, I think, from Paul Tech's, um, Paul Tech's warrior's leg. Uh, while Gober's artwork is similarly um, realistic and very sort of, and um, shows great attention to all the details that make one really believe that this is a human leg. Uh, it's not quite so graphically severed from the rest of its body. In fact, I think you can almost imagine um, the rest of the person sort of behind the gallery wall and that leg just sort of sticking out from a hole, a hole in the gallery wall. So um, a different kind of strategy about decontextualizing a fragment of the human body. Um, jarring, but equally jarring, I would say, as Paul Tech's, but in a maybe more psychological or surreal way and, and not quite so graphic. Um, the fourth sculpture in this area is by a young artist named Dario Robledo. And um, it, like the Keenholz piece, has a, a fairly um, complex iconography uh, that hinges on the materials that are used in the sculpture. What you're looking at is a uh, recasting of a hominid archaeological specimen that has come to be known as Lucy. Um, this is an early forerunner, um, in fact, about three million years old. <laughs> uh, so an early forerunner of the human species that was uh, discovered in the 1970s um, and uh, was actually named Lucy after the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And, um, in the 70s, and I think even today, uh, the, the, the specimen itself uh, triggers sort of a lot of wonder and speculation about um, how humanity came to be, um, to take the shape that it does now. And um, 
I think Robledo's piece evokes that. It gives us an opportunity to consider this um, predecessor to the human species. But he adds several, um, several additional layers of meaning to the artwork. The um, cast is actually made from um, human bone dust mixed with a binding agent. So in, in those bones are actually human uh, fragments or powder of human bones. And then the, the bones themselves are hollow and they've been filled with melted audio recordings of the poet Sylvia Plath reading two of her poems. Each of those poems have to um, deal with a problematic father figure, a kind of uh, fascistic or dominant father figure. Um, so those audio recordings have then been melted, uh, fill those, and they fill the hollow bones. And then of course, if you look closely, you can see that the artist has painted um, the surface of the bones to make them look more realistic. So in addition to kind of that complicating factor, uh, another material aspect of the sculpture worth pointing out is that the, the bones lie atop this sort of paper doily um, that has been made by pulping the letters of uh, women, um, whether they be mothers, sisters, or uh, daughters, of soldiers at wars, at, at various wars. Um, so these are, one presumes, very emotional letters about, um, about from women who miss their loved ones. So there's an interesting ma matriarchal um, aspect to this sculpture, I think, uh, that comes from the fact that you have these uh, letters from various women to their loved ones. Uh, Sylvia Plath's voice, in a way, represented um, through that kind of material melt, melted um, remnant of her, her poems. And um, the fact that this archeological specimen is a female specimen and a female forerunner to the human, human species. So that is an aspect that I think has to be reconciled with the fact that, that the artwork also is looking at things that no longer exist or things that have been devastated by war or potentially devastated by war or just the ongoing process of um, human development. So um, the sculpture gives us a lot to think about and um, I urge you to spend some time considering it and also taking a close look at the um, the wall label, uh, which gives a little bit more information about Plath's poem. Before we leave this area, I just want to point out uh, two works, the two works on the wall, one by Gary Simmons and one by Philip Guston. And both of those uh, use cartoon-like imagery. Uh, and I think I won't say much about the works except to ask the question, what does the distillation of kind of the human body or a part of the human body into the fanciful form of a cartoon um, do to the narratives uh, that we tell about ourselves and to the way that we can kind of imagine ourselves? We move um, a, just a little bit further past the Dario Robledo. There are two works on the, the wall um, to your right, one by Nikki de Saint-Fal and one by William de Kooning. Um, what's curious here is to compare the two images, I think. Um, one, of course, the Nikki de Saint-Fal is strikingly larger. In a sense, it's almost a monumental depiction of a human form. The de Kooning is a little bit um, more, uh, a little bit more intimate, I guess, in scale. 
Um, the Dessenfall has all sorts of detail um, within its body, just concentric circles of imagery, while the de Kooning is um, a little bit more brushy, uh, a little bit more expressionistic in, its, in the way the paint has been applied to paper. But if you, if you spend time with them, um, actually even not so much time, I think there's this striking resemblance um, from one figure to the next. If you take a look at the labels, you'll see that the date on the de Saint-Fall is 1964 and the date on the de Kooning is 1965. And they both have the same title, Pink Lady. Now, our museum records aren't completely conclusive about this, uh, the relationship between the two works, but I will share uh, what those records do um, suggest, that um, Joseph Hirshhorn, the, founding, uh, the founder of the Hirshhorn Museum, acquired the Pink Lady by Nikki de Saint-Fall in 1964, the same year she made it. He then uh, received as a gift from William de Kooning the Pink Lady of 1965. Um, this, this work by de Kooning is actually inscribed uh, to Joe with love, Bill. And um, it went straight from de Kooning's studio uh, as a gift to Hirshhorn in 65. So I would venture to speculate that de Kooning might have seen um, the Pink Lady in Joseph Hirshhorn's collection and somehow been taken enough with it to create this, this small gift to Joseph Hirshhorn based on the image. As I said, um, the, the museum records only tell us the dates and um, the inscription information of these two works, and of course the dates they came into Hirshhorn's collection. But the, um, the, 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 the fact that the two works share the same title and the sort of uh, amazing um, similarity between the color and the form in the two artworks does point to um, there being a, a possible connection. Directly across from uh, the de Saint-Fal and the de Kooning, you'll see one of the most popular artworks in the Hirshhorn's collection, a large sculpture of a, a nude man by Ron Muick uh, called Untitled Big Man. And, um, you know, I've told you, I've just told you that it is one of the most popular works in the museum's collection, so I think it's worth uh, considering as you look at it why people are so drawn to this, this kind of brooding giant that sits off in the corner. It's also interesting to think about this figure in relationship to some of the other artworks that are featured in this exhibition. Um, among them, the Robert Gober leg and the Paul Tech leg. That comparison, I think, is not only interesting in terms of, of considering how realistically each of the artists have rendered the human figure, but also that each of those artists have adopted a strategy of decontextualizing the figure from other, from other information. I mean, it's perhaps more striking with those two um, sculptures of legs. Uh, the entire body that belongs to the legs is, is missing. And here with Ron Muick's work, you are given an entire figure to consider. But the big man um, is sort of out of place. The artist hasn't given us any other kind of context for understanding why this man is sort of upset and pouting <laughs> and uh, why he's so large. So um, in a way, there's sort of a surrealistic um, approach to depicting the figure that Muick uses that I think is not unlike um, 
Robert Gober and Paul Tech's uh, approaches. The other way to think about the Muick is to think about whether this figure is an idealistic or an unromanticized form and how that compares to some of the other artworks in this um, installation, particularly the John Curran um, painting of two women standing in front of a pink tree that is hung right next to the Muick. All, all fi these figures, the two women and the Muick, are weirdly, um, kind of weirdly out of scale. I would say that the Currens are slightly out of proportion, where the Muick retains its proportion but is inflated. Um, and, of course, we have uh, an opportunity to compare the representation of different genders in these two images. Um, and I just, I, I wonder as I look at them, um, where beauty lies. You know, does beauty lie in sort of examining um, the realities of human flesh and muscle and fat and um, wrinkles? Or does beauty lie in idealizing those forms and um, making them more perfect than, um, than they are in real life? Um, another work to, to sort of add to this uh, line of thinking um, or line of consideration is uh, work that we, we passed but didn't discuss, Lucian Freud's um, painting of a, another large, bald man. So um, you might want to go back and have a little look at that. Uh, and think about it in relationship to the Muick. Uh, before we sort of end uh, speaking about this particular area, um, you will see, if you're looking at the John Kern painting, you'll see on your left two works flanking a doorway, one by uh, Rene Magritte and another by the artist Balthus. And um, these two works, I hope, lend some historical context or at least a, a historical relationship for thinking about the John Curran and thinking about the Ron Muick as well as some of the other pieces in, um, in this particular installation. Again, we can talk about um, sort of idealistic images of the human form when we look at these. The body that is represented in the Magritte painting is um, is a beautiful feminine body. And the two figures in the Balthus painting seem to be forever suspended in their youth, in the kind of idealistic position of youth. Um, the two works also uh, point to this issue of context. The Balthus figures um, sort of float almost on a neutral background. And again, like the Muick or the Robert Gober, we don't quite know the full context of what they are reacting to. Um, why the, they have the facial expressions they do. And the, in the Magritte painting, um, on the other hand, you do have context. You have a sort of an odd, um, an odd cubed sky hovering above a, a blue ocean and um, a candle sitting next to the nude on a, on a windowsill. So with the Magritte, you're actually given more de details about the context in which this figure rests. However, um, there are strange details, and the narrative that is implied isn't, isn't necessarily clear, um, and really, in a way, the artist leaves it to the viewer to invent, invent that narrative. One thing um, that's historically interesting to note about the Balthus painting before we, we leave it is that um, the two figures in the image, uh, Hubert and Therese Blanchard, were Balthus's models um, on several occasions in the 1930s. Um, and m most tragically, uh, both of them died in World War II. 
So um, this notion that they are kind of in a suspended animation, in a suspended ideal state, um, takes on an additional poignancy when we think about their historical fates. And as you move through that doorway um, between the Magritte and the Balthus, you enter sort of the last space of this particular installation. Um, and this room is, is dedicated really to artworks by uh, the German artist George Gross, who I had just mentioned a few moments ago uh, when we were talking about Sukho's painting. Um, the Hirschhorn, again, is very lucky to have uh, an in-depth holding of works on paper and some paintings by this, this artist. Um, as you take a look around the gallery, uh, you'll notice on the far back wall a very striking painting called The Café from 1915. Um, this, this work represents sort of the earlier part of uh, George Gross's career as uh, a moment in which he was uh, depicting cafe society in Berlin, in his, home, his hometown of Berlin. Um, as you look at the other works in the gallery, the, the works on paper, uh, you'll see a slight difference um, both, I think, in terms of style and intent, as the images become more um, narrative in some ways, and also, also take on really the, um, take on the aspects of caricature. And uh, it, it's worth saying and worth thinking about uh, the fact that George Gross moved from um, working as a painter to being more interested in disseminating his works. Uh, through additioned portfolios and in various publications. Um, and also putting into his work content that related to um, the situation in which he was living, which was Germany between World War I and World War II. So you'll see, um, see images that relate to the church, that relate to the military, um, and that also just relate to sort of the class scenario of, of Germany and sort of middle class complacency. There's a, a very striking image of um, a mother and father sitting at a table as their young son plays with machine gun. Uh, there are also images of, um, of people walking down the street or, or interacting in public spaces in you know, fur coats and kind of wealthy attire which are then juxtaposed against figures um, who, who seem from, from their posture and clothing to have fewer means at their disposal. And there really doesn't seem to be any kind of um, hope for one, one class of society helping out another. Um, there are also in this gallery three uh, collages that Gross produced later on in his career. And uh, these uh, sort of bounce back to the less political in terms of their content, but um, I think they are no less absurd than the social situations that Gross has uh, pointed out um, in his works on paper. Uh, the absurdity has just taken another form. And that certainly is also true in um, the second painting in this gallery, The Painter of the Whole One from 1948 where um, Gross is depicting an artist looking at a canvas that's punctured by a hole, um, in a way confronting a sort of meaninglessness um, to his endeavor as an artist, 
um, but also to sort of what content might be out there in the world um, to, to uh, take as a subject for art. So um, I do urge you to spend some time in this gallery uh, to look at the, the draftsmanship of growth closely and to look at the content of the images closely and to think about how artists have um, depicted the human form not only in ways that deal with formal issues or issues of beauty or issues of contemplation, but also um, issues of politics and um, critique. 